The assault on Israel, launched by Hamas on the 2nd, 7th of October, was pretty much like something out of the pages of the darkest ages of antiquity. Marauders came through Israel in the southern part, not to claim territory or even to get some treasure, but to slaughter innocents and to take hostages. As we know by now, they killed young women, snatched elderly people from the streets, they murdered and burned families with their children. When I describe it like that, it is by no means sensationalism that we're going for, and nor is it exaggeration. If anybody was in any doubt, then a bundle of journalists at the start of the week had all doubts removed regarding the barbarity that took place on the 7th of October. They were brought in, foreign journalists, and treated to a 43-minute-long video of Hamas murdering, torturing, abducting Israeli civilians. And this video was pieced together from material that came from Hamas gunmen on their body cams and their smartphones, taken also from security cameras, from Daesh cameras as well. And it was shown by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, to this pool of journalists in Tel Aviv on Monday past, 23rd of October 2023. They witnessed in those videos the killing of children, including the decapitation of some of the victims. One Breibart journalist said, audience members, they began weeping as they sat in their chairs, and others whimpered after only a matter of minutes, make it stop. There is no amount of redemption in the footage, this journalist said. After the video was done, we were allowed to go outside to retrieve our equipment. I had to sit down. I leaned against a wall and cried. Another journalist for the Atlantic said that some of the audience members, they were heard retching and heaving. There was a violent, involuntary response to the level of evil and gore that was on display. I certainly hope I never see any of the extra footage again, that journalist said. The audience that day of those journalists was not allowed to record the compilation. And the full unedited footage will not be shared with the public, Israel has said, unless all of the families of those who have been killed within those videos will view that, give it permission to show it to the world. And really that means it's unlikely that the whole clip will ever be released publicly. But there was one excerpt, round about a minute long, that they did release. And I'm sure you've seen it. It showed Hamas terrorists flagging down a small silver car, two people in it, as it drove slowly along a rural road. The gunmen opened fire, they hit the vehicle, they fired and fired right down a whole line of those gunmen. The vehicle swerves, halts, bangs into one of their jeeps, and now we see two blurred out people slumped 
in the front seats. That could have been anybody in that car. The reason why Israel felt that we need to show the journalists all of this gory material, government spokesman Elon Levi explained that we had to release it to counter what he described as a, a Holocaust denial-like phenomenon because of the backlash that was coming due to Israelites' airstrikes along the Gaza Strip. The IDF, he said, has been collecting footage from body cams taken by Hamas death squads as they rampaged through the communities in southern Israel, butchering everyone in sight. I can't believe, he said, I'm saying this. As we work to defeat the horror organization, we are witnessing a Holocaust denial-like phenomenon evolving in real time as people are casting doubt on the magnitude of the atrocities Hamas committed against our people and, in fact, recorded in order to glorify this violence. So we're not so much delving into some kind of video that has been tailored and manufactured, but material that Hamas has recorded itself. And you'll see in a moment or two just how they were glorying in what they were doing. I and many others have concluded that the atrocities here that were committed by Hamas bear an uncanny resemblance to the wicked activities the Bible describes the Amalekites as having used. And so, first of all tonight, what we're going to do is look at the cruelty of the Amalekites. The cruelty of the Amalekites. There were many vicious people in the ancient world. For example, we find Nahum talk about the Ninevites. We have the Assyrians. They were notoriously wicked. The Canaanites as well. And yet, in the midst of all of these cruel peoples, why does God single out Amalek in Scripture for special mention due to the depth of their depravity? Why is that? What the Amalekites did was they specialized in attacking the weak. This was their modus operandi what they became infamous for. Coming up out of the land of Egypt, Israel got its first taste of war in a battle with these people, the Amalekites. Read about it in Exodus 17, verse 8 to 16, and then Moses reflects on that in Deuteronomy 25, and verse 18. And we have the scenario, it's famous to all of us who know the Bible. Moses is up there on the hill on a bit of a perch there. His hands are held high, on the one side by Aaron, the other side by Herm. Joshua down in the valley below is defeating the Amalekite army. And Moses later reminds Israel that Amalek met thee by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. In other words, Amalek slaughtered the stragglers. 
took out the soft targets, those that had no means of defending themselves. Again, in Scripture, we find that Amalekite raiders attacked Ziklag when David and his mighty men were marching with the Philistines to engage Saul. And that was a time when only women and children were present back at the base camp. And we read in 1 Samuel 13, the verse 2 and the verse 3, that they had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, neither great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. And then we move over in Scripture to the book of Esther, where we meet Haman. We're told he was an Agagite. That's effectively an Amalekite. In Saul's day, there was a king of the Amalekites called Agai. And here's a man, Haman, in direct descending line from that king. He's an Amalekite. And what is he doing? He's conspiring and conniving to enlist the power of the whole Persian Empire, now Iran, the empire of Ahasuerus, to exterminate the exiled Jews in that time of Esther. But what happened to Israel on the 7th of October this year was nothing less than an anti-Semitic pogrom. Let's kill all the Jews we can. Some two and a half thousand members, they reckon, of Hamas, hunted Jews through southern Israel burning them out of their homes, shooting, killing, abducting them, men, women, and children. And as of just a couple of days ago, it's known that over 1,400 Israelis were murdered then, over 3,500 wounded, and maybe 222 abducted and taken over to the Gaza Strip. Major General Verov, speaking about one of the scenes where Hamas had assaulted Kafar Azza, said... I saw hundreds of terrorists in full armor, full gear, with all the equipment and all the ability to make a massacre, go from apartment to apartment, from room to room, and kill babies, mothers, fathers in their bedrooms. I have heard during my childhood about the pogroms in Europe, the Holocaust, of course. All my family came from Europe. They are survivors, but I never thought... I would see things like that. Jewish people have not been murdered in these kind of numbers since the Holocaust. In fact, on a point of comparison, in the worst day of the Yom Kippur War, which was more or less an anniversary here, 7th of October 1973, on that day, 317 Israelis were killed. And by all accounts, And the reports from these journalists are freely available on the internet. The footage they saw that day, Monday past, was stuffed with clip after clip of civilians being shot and stabbed and tortured and burned. Their corpses were arranged for all to see, bound, gagged, riddled with bullet holes and knife wounds. Others had been decapitated using knives. One poor soul was partially decapitated with a garden hoe as he lay cradling a bullet wound in his stomach. 
One clip showed a father and his two sons. They reckoned the sons would have been aged around about seven and nine. And they're running in their underwear to what appeared to be a bomb shelter, but a Hamas terrorist threw a grenade. The blast killed the father. He pitches forward into the turf. One of his young boys is covered in blood. The child is dragged inside then, forced to sit next to his brother. His eye is a bloodied mess. Either due to the shrapnel from that grenade or through torture, one of the boys sobs, why am I alive? As those ruthless terrorists stand over the body of his father. In another scene, Hamas attackers entered a house and spoke to a girl hiding under a table. After some talking back and forth, they shoot and kill her. Hard to say, Jotam Confino, one of the correspondents who witnessed these videos, hard to say how old she is, but she looks like seven to nine years old. Another dark chunk of that footage showed how the unsuspecting IDF soldiers were beheaded and their headless corpses left splayed in the streets. A contingent of female soldiers, they were incapacitated by a grenade thrown at them before being shot at near point-blank range. Meanwhile, in an audio clip, a Hamas gunman is heard bragging to his family about killing ten Jews. He had stolen the phone of one of his victims. He boasts that he's a hero. And he says in that recording, open my WhatsApp now. He's talking to his parents. And you'll see all those killed. Dad, I'm talking to you from a Jewish woman's phone. I killed her and I killed her husband. I killed ten with my own hands. Dad, ten with my own hands. The journalists also shared how they saw those terrible, terrifying scenes of young people at that Nova music festival where more than 250 civilians were slaughtered. Some of them hidden skips, others in portable toilets, but they were all found and either gunned down or savagely beaten before being taken hostage. Others have come in with their own individual stories. Rescue worker, Moshe, Meliev, told how entire families were slaughtered in their homes by those black-clad terrorists wielding assault rifles, carrying grenades as they launched this surprise attack. He's from the National Rescue Unit. And he said as he walked through the kibbutzim on the Gaza border, he saw those beheaded bodies of victims lying on the floors of their homes where earlier that morning they had been drinking coffee. I saw beheaded bodies. I saw body parts. In a house there was a husband and wife and two children. They killed the husband first, then took his eyes out. I saw the body myself. They cut the breasts of the woman off, and they cut the leg off the girl. That's the family that I saw with mine own eyes, Meliev said. And he shook his head as he recounted the horrors that those Hamas terrorists inflicted on hundreds of Jewish families.
Colonel Haim Weisberg has got the job of identifying the bodies of the victims of this massacre. He said, I saw babies with their heads chopped off. Soldiers and civilians whose genitals had been cut off, as well as women who had been raped. They filmed, he said, a pregnant woman. A terrorist arrives. He disembowels her, takes out the baby, and in front of her, he comes out and massacres the baby before killing her. Everything is filmed. Babies whose heads were decapitated, soldiers, private parts cut off, small and elderly women raped. He said, we're in an abnormal situation, and that is why it's taking so long to identify the bodies. In most cases, we've had to identify people via deep tissue DNA or dental records because there is nothing left, and we are still getting bodies. Last night, he said, we received an additional 73 body parts. He added, these are things we have not seen since the Nazis. We are seeing trucks arriving with whole families inside, grandparents, mothers, fathers, and children, and we are still collecting bodies from the roads, homes, playgrounds, and fields where they were killed. He revealed many of the bodies he sees are so badly charred, so difficult to identify them. He said it was only after a CT scan that they discovered one charred body was, in fact, a mother holding her baby in a tight embrace. Amalekites were not just cruel. Amalek was the inverse, if you want to put it like this, the photonegative of what God demanded of His people Israel and what He expects of every single nation under heaven. And again and again, we know in the Old Testament, Jehovah is instructing Israel, care for the orphans, look after the widows, look after the strangers, look out for other vulnerable people. How many times have you read that in God's holy word? Tucked into a whole long series of laws meant to govern that newly formed nation of Israel, there's a passage in Exodus 22, you'll find it in verse 21 through 24, where God is telling that nation just formed, have a concern for the weak and for the vulnerable. Let me read part of that. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger, nor oppress him. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Deuteronomy chapter 10, the verse 18, He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth a stranger in giving him food and raiment. Deuteronomy 14, the verse 29, And the Levite, because he hath no part nor inheritance with thee, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, which are within thy gates, shall come and shall eat and be satisfied that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hand which thou doest. Another comparable verses you'll find again in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19 to 21, chapter 26, verse 12 and verse 13. At those famous mountains, Ebal and Gerizim, 
there was a curse pronounced against anyone, Deuteronomy 27 to verse 19, anyone who perverteth the judgment of the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And right through Scripture, you have prophet after prophet, and he's chastening the nation and reeling against Israel and her leaders whenever they stepped out of this and abused the weak. For example, in Isaiah 1, And the verse 17, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. In Jeremiah 7 and the verse 6, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt. Jeremiah 22, and the verse 3, Thus saith the Lord, execute ye judgment and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the, the hand of the oppressor, and do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. And again in Ezekiel 16.49 and Zechariah 7 and 10, similar sentiments. Now those Amalekites, they didn't simply harm women and children as collateral damage. They specifically targeted those women, those children, those weak persons, the hindmost, the weary, and the faint. They targeted them. So Amalek is, in effect, anti Israel, a people whose way of life and values and military tactics are in direct opposition to God's purposes for all of humanity. Even in the conquest of Canaan, that was not bloodless. But Israel didn't attack Jericho or Ai or Hormah. When all the men were gone and nothing but women and children were there, They attacked fortified cities, guarded cities. They offered quarter to those in the city before they did so. And so this contrast is clearly seen in the Bible and today. You can even pick it up from the emblems of the nation of Israel and in particular the Al-Khwazam Brigade, the soldiery, mean soldiery, of the Hamas movement. On Israel's side, you have that menorah, the candlestick, the olive branches, representing light and peace. With Hamas, You've got your rifle there, in this case an Armalite or an M16. And other badges, they have hand grenades as well, but notice in this one. In one hand, what do we have? The rifle. In the other, the Koran. Representing death and destruction. By a word or two of caution. Hamas is not the same as the Palestinian people. Thousands of Palestinians are Christians. Many Muslim Palestinians oppose Hamas and its violence. They were taken over by them in 2007. But according to the latest Washington Institute polls, 
and they conducted one in July of 2023, so very recent, Hamas' decision to break the ceasefire wasn't a popular move. 62% of Palestinians wanted to maintain the ceasefire with Israel. Half of them, 50% of the Palestinians, agreed that Hamas should stop calling for Israel's destruction and instead accept a permanent two-state solution based on the 1967 borders. And across the region, it is thought that Hamas was losing popularity among other Arab publics. And some imagine maybe this decline in their popularity and traction in these nations might have been one of the motivating factors behind the group's decision to go on the attack. But one thing is certain. The murderous operations room of Hamas will never provide good leadership for any Palestinian living in Gaza. They will bring, as they are doing, devastation upon their community. Now, to compare Hamas to Amalek, it's not justifying or even suggesting genocide. But still, the tactics Hamas used on the 7th of October were Amalekite tactics. And Hamas is not the first organization to fight in the way that the Amalekites did. We have terror groups acting like this for decades. Indonesian Islamists deploy women as suicide bombers. Boko Haram in Nigeria use children as human bombs. Terrorists in Afghanistan have killed pregnant women and babies in maternity wards. If Hamas had simply taken civilian hostages and not gone in this murderous rampage, and that act alone would have been evil, the Bible forbids kidnapping, but if it had taken only hostages, pulled them out of Israel, brought them into Gaza, then they might have been able to argue that we have some military justification for it, because we all know that over the years, hostages have been exchanged with Israel in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. But Hamas has not simply taken hostages. It has deliberately designed its military operations with the aim of taking out and murdering as many civilians in the most wicked ways imaginable. Those civilians, they were not collateral damage of attacks on military targets. The civilians themselves were the targets. And there is no biblical justification for that butchery. Since this vile slaughter, we've been treated to marchers at pro-Palestinian rallies in many parts of the world. And when a bit of scraping is done underneath the surface, those are in reality, in many cases, pro-Hamas celebrations. And the chant goes out justifying the wickedness of Hamas. Resistance is justified when people are occupied. One banner really did make me smile. It read, Queers for Palestine. Seriously? Are you queers planning and going there? One thing is guaranteed if you do. None of you will be coming home alive. And as far as our local political parties like Sinn Féin, IRA, Alliance, the SDLP, and people before Prophet 
Normally, of course, they're on the bandwagon as champions of LGBT, etc., etc., causes. And they're showing support for Palestine under Hamas rule with all of the human rights violations that have gone on there, never mind their wanton cruelty and barbarity against Israel. Well, don't they know that under Palestinian law, being gay is punishable by up to 10 years in prison, and in Gaza, it's punishable by death? So why would people who were so keen to be photographed front and center of pride parades over here with their flags and their banners then come out now every weekend in our towns and our villages and our city center waving their Palestinian flags and condemning Israel at every opportunity? In fact, why would any gay rights or human rights activists come out in support of Palestine and its Islamist dictatorship? Those anti-Israel activists may stand with Palestine. But what those foolish people don't realize or don't seem to, Palestine certainly wouldn't stand with them. There is, of course, much truth in the observation that people who support all things for all people, in actual fact, support nothing at all. Christians must not get involved in rallies of this kind or their social media equivalents that make defenses for the indefensible, for intentional slaughter of civilians, defending the indefensible, characterizing murder and rape and kidnapping and describing it rather as resistance is certainly not how we weep with those who weep. cruelty of the Amalekites. The other points are much shorter. The curse upon the Amalekites. When the battle against Amalek was over in Moses' day, Jehovah himself took an oath. And in Exodus 17 and 16, the oath is recorded, for he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And he vows, in a couple of verses previous to that, verse 14, he vows to fight until the memory of Amalek is blotted out from under heaven. Now, the Lord made good on that promise. He commanded, if you remember King Saul carry out his ban of utter destruction against Amalek. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 1 to 3, Saul won the battle, but he spares the king of Amalek, King Agag, keeps a lot of the plunder. Samuel comes in and he hews Agag to pieces at Gilgal, but the Amalekites survive. And they come up again, as mentioned, near the end of David's exile, they attack his camp at Ziklag. They carry off the woman, the children, the plunder. And the last act David performed before being anointed king of Israel himself was to chase down those Amalekite raiders and recover his wives and children and goods. He went in for the hostages and he brought them out. But 400 Amalekites escaped from David's hands for Samuel 30 and 17. So Amalek lived to fight another day. But you know something? Lord had not forgotten his oath. The villain of the book of Esther is Haman, 
the Agagite, Esther 3 and 1, Esther 8 and 3, a descendant of the king that had fought against King Saul. And Esther, under the providence of God, cleverly traps Haman in his wicked scheme. And the Lord in that book, he is orchestrating events so that Haman ends up hanging from the gallows that he made for Esther's cousin, the Jew, Mordecai. That is the last reference to Amalek in the Old Testament because Jehovah made good on his threat. Amalek is remembered only because of the Bible, but other than that, they are the forgotten people. We should never forget that the Lord who purged Amalek from under heaven is still the Lord of the universe. He is still determined to destroy the violent, especially those who prey on the helpless. He doesn't just hate Amalekites, but all men of bloodshed and men of violence. In Psalm 11 and 5 you read, The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. And in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, we discover that among the six things that God hates are hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief. The United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, stoked fury in Israel and elsewhere, when he said that these Hamas attacks have to be seen in the context of years of suffocating occupation. And then he went on to describe Israel's bombardment and blockade of the Gaza Strip in response to the Hamas attacks as the collective punishment of the Palestinian people and clear violations of international humanitarian law. And after his remarks, the Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen said in a tweet, I will not meet with the UN Secretary General. And he talked about teaching him a lesson and the UN with him. And he said, after the 7th of October massacre, there is no place for a balanced approach. Hamas must be erased off the face of the planet. Eli Cohen also asked, how can you agree to a ceasefire with someone who swore to kill and destroy your own existence? And that's the current plan. Due to Hamas, what other nations in coalition determined they would do to ISIS. But how? Former Defence Secretary for the Labour Party, Lord Reid of Cardoan, he argued the murderous attack carried out against Israel by Hamas. It followed the established pattern set by other terror groups, including Al-Qaeda and the so-called Islamic State and the Al-Shabaab. And he said, it arises primarily from Islamist ideology and practice, a toxic mix of perverted Islam, fascism, and cruelty. Against this evil, Israel has the right to defend itself. That is not the question. The question is how it does that. 
And that is the big challenge for Israel. In their desire to make Hamas pay, of course they need to be careful. And in my opinion, no nation on earth is more careful than trying not to engage in indiscriminate attacks involving massive amounts of civilians. But they cannot afford to become a mimetic mirror of their enemies. We need to remember as well that although Israel's army can inflict a terrible blow upon Hamas, that will completely pale in comparison to what the Lord is going to do on the last day. Our Lord Jesus rules with a rod of iron. He does smash nations like pottery. In Revelation 2 and verse 27, we are told, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. And he will take all of his enemies and he'll put them under his feet, not just the enemies of the Amalekites or of Hamas and all of those who love violence and hate mercy, they'll all be gathered in there and crushed by him for those who are not Christ. And for these murderous men, there is a day of judgment, a revelation of the wrath of God, a frightening, sobering thought, that is, even if the mo most of the world doesn't want to contemplate it. Each one of those Hamas terrorists will stand not before Allah, but before their Creator. They will give an account for their actions, and they will bend the knee, and they will confess that Jesus is Lord and King of kings before entering eternity. The cruelty of the Amalekites, the curse upon the Amalekites, now, a couple of conclusions about the Amalekites. And I'll mention a word that if you're just about to nod off to sleep, might just waken you up. Prediction. I'm glad to hear it. Prediction. Which brings us into the realm of prophecy and eschatology and end times teaching. But what I'm saying is don't be excited at the mere mention of those words because the mere mention of those words brings out audiences. And most of them listen to the biggest lot of nonsense man ever spoke. A whole legion of prophecy pundits and end times YouTubers have popped up since the 7th of October, many of whom they're offering the wild and the bizarre speculations about this tragedy and how it fits in with the end times. Now, that's what they do all the time. This is how they try to attract an audience. This is how they attempt to build a following. Now, I must admit something. I haven't wasted my time watching or reading much of this recent prophecy speculation. But what I have seen, and most of that is what other people have sent to me, Mr. Brown, have a look at that. What do you think of this? It's largely a rehash of prophetic scenarios that have been long since discredited. Why were they discredited? By the embarrassing fact they got it wrong when they were brought up the first time. 
But here we are again. These field predictions from former days are now repackaged and presented as new material with the hope that the people listening were going to forget how wrong the pundits were the last time they wheeled out these very same predictions. As for any biblical significance to the horrors inflicted upon Israeli citizens by Hamas terrorists, well, that clearly falls under the category of signs given to us by Jesus about wars and rumors of wars in Matthew 24, verse 6 to 8. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not predict specific conflicts such as this one. Only what He describes as the birth pangs of the end. What happened? 7th of October, southern Israel falls into this category of wars and rumors of wars, but there is no specific fulfillment of any biblical prophecy regarding Israel here. That's why it's so important to have a sound eschatology in place before things like this happen, because they will happen again and again until Christ returns. But this I am confident of. The Lord Jesus Christ, He is the Lord of history, and He is directing everything to His appointed ends. We may not know when the Lord returns, and He tells us we won't. Of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, but we are sure that He will return. And the signs of the end are not proof that our Lord is being indifferent towards us, but they are showing, reminding us of His promise to return, and when He returns, that He will make all things right. So that's prediction. Petition. When Moses held his arms aloft, as Joshua down in the valley below waged the battle against Amalek. It was a symbol of his intercession to God on behalf of his people. That's a vital posture for us in these darkening days. I wonder, do people who flock to end times meetings and sit there happily for a week or more What's their prayer life like? How often are they on their knees about these scenarios? Get on our knees, lift our hands to heaven like Moses did, and pray. Sometimes our Lord Jesus defeats the violent by converting them. Sometimes by destroying them. Either way, we should be asking Him to do it. It is right to pray for the speedy defeat of Hamas. We have a prayer and a hymn book, the Psalter. We've read from it tonight, sung from it as well, full of prayers for justice and judgment upon those who are vicious. And it's a good time to get into the Psalter and dust off those imprecatory psalms, as they're called, and ask the Lord Jesus to pursue justice until every Amalekite of whatever stripe or shade or nationality is purged from under heaven. Where do we find these imprecatory psalms? It's really only a fancy word for curse. Yes, there are psalms pronouncing curses on the heads of God's enemies. Well, we've read one of them tonight, Psalm 69, another one, Psalm 109. Are there any more? 
You can be absolutely sure there are. 5, 6, 11, 12, 35, 37, 40, 52, 54, 56, 57, 58, 59, 79, 83, 94, 137, 139, and 143 are also considered as imprecatory. Is this only in the Psalms? Let me take you to Nehemiah. Remember the brutal opposition that he and the builders faced? Hear, O our God, he cries. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 4 to 5. For we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them for a prey in the land of captivity, and cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. Paul wasn't behind the door in issuing a curse either. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Even Jesus issued woe upon woe upon woe upon the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and then upon Judas in Matthew 26, verse 23 and 24. Now, these imprecatory psalms, they're not for the faint-hearted. They're not petty prayers. These are justice psalms. They're prayers that God will do what He has promised to do, that He will judge righteously on the earth. We're going back for just a moment to Exodus 22, the verse 21 to 24, where, as you remember, the Lord told His people, protect the sojourner and the widow and the orphan. And He doesn't say, whenever they cry to me out of injustice, that I will rebuke them and not their enemies. Rather, He says, I will hear their cry, I will respond in judgment. And these are strong words from the Creator of the universe. In the surrounding nations, the three groups of people the Lord mentions here, the sojourners, the widows, the fatherless, they all would have lacked a family head, and they wouldn't have had a kinsman redeemer to protect them. They would have been totally alone in societies where the safety net back then was only, well, don't you have family to look after you, because if you don't, then you're finished. But by making this law, God established Israel as a different kind of society, one that protected the weak. And if His people fell down in field right here and didn't protect the weak, God says, I promise to defend the weak myself. Praying for justice then is rooted in Scripture. And there we find three ways in which God demonstrates that justice. He invites the weak and the vulnerable, bring your complaints to me. He has proven already he will judge evildoers. And we need to get to it, don't we? Where's the cross? He graciously and gloriously offers justice poured out at the cross for our salvation. God's justice is at work at Calvary when He offered to us grace as a gift to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Why did He pass over our former sins to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in 
Jesus. And there, righteousness and peace kiss each other. And the Savior dies brutally. The worst that men and demons can do, they did. That my soul may be bought by the price of precious blood. And my person made sure of heaven, not because of my righteousness, but because of His. We should by all means pray for the salvation of people on both sides. We join with Paul when he pleads in Romans 10 and 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And we agree with Paul when in the first chapter of the same book, Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, he talks about this wonderful gospel, and he said it's to the Jew first, but also, also to the Greek. Jews and Gentiles, let's pray for their salvation. Pray for the protection, the healing, the comfort of people on both sides. And pray for the growth of the church, because that is Christ's peculiar focus in all He does. All the rest of the world is just scaffolding. He's building His church. That's the project to pray for the growth of His church that lives inside the borders of both nations. Let's come to prayer tonight.